Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's live 2020 election coverage, focusing on what organized labor is doing throughout the United States to ensure all votes are counted and labor's voice is heard. Reporting will be based on contributions from our national network of members. Views expressed do not represent official positions of the network. The Labor Radio Podcast Network has over 70 labor-focused shows in four countries and serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. You can follow the conversation with the hashtag LaborRadioPod, where we are broadcasting working people's voices 24 hours a day. All right, welcome back, folks. Hour, what is this? Hour five, hour six? I don't know. It's it's uh, ten o'clock here on the East Coast. <laughs> kind of lost track. Uh, anyway, this is the Labor Radio Podcast Network uh, with our first ever national uh, live stream. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, let's, uh, oh, uh, there we go. Um, and it's very good to have you uh, all here. Uh, we've got a couple things I want to do. Um, uh, yeah. Alan, Alan, you have a report uh, from... Um, uh, from our Facebook stream that you should share with us. Sure. Um, so uh, the report is just a comment, um, a comment that was left by Betty Maloney um, asking us why we're not addressing tomorrow's demos and the power of a general strike um, to put the power in the hands of working people and not in uh, the Democratic um, Working Families Party. Uh, anybody want to address that? I think we're pro. Uh, well, I, I think the, uh, the problem is. I, Go ahead, Steve. I was going to address that. Yeah, I get, take it. Go run with it. Yeah, I think the problem is that the uh, the trade unions uh, have an electoralist strategy. Um, I think the last mass labor rally that I saw was uh, when Humphrey was running. There are a couple hundred thousand workers in, in D.C. But there's been no mobilization of uh, labor against the attacks that it faces. Mass mobilization. I'm talking about workers' mobilization. And we were talking earlier about uh, a labor channel, you know, or labor media. Well, I mean, the the uh, unions are spending hundreds of millions of dollars in um, hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, election campaign. In California, they're spending millions, maybe 50, 60 million dollars, but we don't even have a channel here. There's no political education. There's no ideological education. In fact, the word class struggle hasn't even come up here. The working class is in a class struggle, and yet it's not mentioned. So when you have a corporatist perspective, which, I, which is what I think it is, you're not going to be able to politically educate working people about the real conditions and real attacks. We have a, a corporate president. We have a cor two corporate parties. Uh, you know, people hoped that Obama was gonna pass legislation when there was a majority of the Democrats in the legislature, um, in, the, in the Congress, they didn't do it. So mm -hmm. I think that, that uh, the lack of mobilization, the reliance on the politicians to solve their problems, the fact in the discussion today, and that's what somebody asked, they're, they're having a protest tomorrow, there are going to be protests on Saturday, but there's no real campaign 
to get people on the streets and to take industrial action, worker action. In fact, the issue of a general strike has been raised by different labor councils. And uh, Liz wasn't asked about it. What is her thoughts about it? I mean, there's a dispute in the, who's going to run for the AFL-CIO? What is her position on that issue? Should the unions prepare for a general strike? Should they talk about the issue of a general strike? So we're facing a, a really a catastrophic situation. I mean, another thing I want to talk about is even public workers. The plan of the Republicans is to bankrupt cities and state governments, public governments, and to attack the pensions. Yet the unions, the public worker unions, have had no united front against the attack on public workers to demand that public work need, workers uh, be funded. Well, if you can't unite even the public workers, politically, AFSCME, SEIU, AFT, uh, these uh, public, CWA, my union, how are you gonna be able to challenge this uh, if every union does its own separate thing? And this is a state of the labor movement right now, which is very dangerous. And it's a, a, used by Trump and the union busters to their advantage. Good question, and uh, I'm, I'm going to say that Steve's response is a good start on a, on a discussion that we need to have. Uh, before we uh, do that, though, I want to welcome a couple of, uh, of new guests that have just uh, joined us. Uh, John Coleman uh, is an organizer with SMART, I believe Local 7, is that right, John? Out of, uh, and I, but I'm not sure where you're based, so um, if you can, uh, and Emily just also introduce uh, uh, John uh, McIntosh, um, who lost my place here. Uh, John, I know you're an editor. Oh, Northwest, Northwest uh, publication. Um, uh, Harold was supposed to introduce you. That's okay. I can, I can introduce myself. Yeah, I'm Don, Don McIntosh, and I'm a reporter, a labor reporter at the Northwest Labor Press, which is a union newspaper in Portland, uh, basically cover Oregon and Southwest Washington labor and politics. And did a great story on the network, so thank you for that. Um, all right, so uh, John, why don't you just start with some of the the races that you're tracking? Uh, I know the polls are still open for a while there, but just what you're looking at, and, and then we'll jump over to uh, Brother Coleman. Sure. Well, uh, you know, there's a couple uh, actually of uh, congressional seats in play, and one in Oregon. We hope it's not in play, but Peter DeFazio has been a a long time. Uh, really reliably pro-labor Democrat and a fierce, fierce opponent of NAFTA-style trade deals. Um, it happens that this year he has a very well-funded campaign by uh, a young guy named Alex Scarlatos, who uh, was the National Guardsman who happened to be on a train in Paris when a terrorist was trying to do something and, and there was a movie made about him and so he's a little bit of a celebrity. But uh, so local labor, I think Oregon labor is a little worried that, you know, DeFazio, you know, might, might uh, get taken out by him. But we'll, we'll know almost certainly tonight, I would think. And then the other one uh, is in Harold's area. That's uh, Carolyn Long, uh, a strong, uh, she ran a strong Democratic challenge to Jamie Herrera Butler, which is sort of like one of these um, sort of Republican robots that the machine manufacturers, not very, not much very interesting about her, but she's been representing Southwest Washington for a while. And so there's, there's some hope that Carolyn Long may uh, may take her out tonight. Um, in, in Oregon, you know, uh, it's actually the uh, the state that started with vote by mail 20 years ago. Uh, it uh, it went to all elections being held exclusively by vote by mail. So it's been sort of amusing to see all of the, uh, I don't know, fear mongering and falsehood peddling about why this is a terrible idea. It's actually, in many respects, it's, it's, it's a, a, a efficient, safe, 
really um, very reliable um, system for, for doing elections. Um, a, lot of, a lot of what we'll, in our Oregon, I think, have our eyes on tonight are uh, ballot measures, both state, state and local. Oregon is also sort of known as a state that does a lot of legislation by ballot measure, for better or worse, mostly for better in, in recent years. Uh, and so there's a couple of measures. One, one would ban, uh, or I should say, would allow restrictions on money in politics, which has been a huge problem. Uh, people might think of Oregon as being this sort of progressive state, and it is in some respects, but it actually has, through a peculiarity of its state Supreme Court, uh, how, how it uh, treats money basically as speech, uh, it has almost no restriction on spending. And so you see like astronomical sums being spent even in, in state legislative races. So it, a lot could rest uh, in terms of future change on whether voters pass that, which it looks like it will pass. Um, there's also a very interesting drug uh, sort of legalization. Uh, basically, it would um, not legalize, but decriminalize uh, the possession of basically all kinds of drugs, heroin, methamphetamine, and so forth. The idea being it's a public health issue, not primarily a criminal one. Um, and so folks who, you know, right now are clogging up the justice system, a lot of expense involved in that, uh, would be instead referred to on-demand uh, treatment. And so, um, and interestingly funded by our marijuana tax, which is doing very well. So, uh, so that, that could be exciting. Um, and I would want to uh, flag one other. Uh, it's just in Multnomah County, which uh, is the county that uh, contains Portland and a couple of east side suburban, suburban communities. But uh, there's a ballot measure on tonight, uh, basically a preschool for all, universal preschool. And what's so exciting about it is uh, it's funded by a tax on the very highest income uh, residents, uh, basically the only the top five or six percent of County residents, the most most well off would pay, um, and it would it would make a preschool, uh, you know, for three and four year olds available to all uh, children in Multnomah County uh, free, um, and it would uh, more than double the pay of the preschool teachers. It would actually put them on par with with kindergarten. So it's really a I think as it's likely to pass, and it uh, could be I hope copied elsewhere, and it would be really be a game changer quite frankly, for working families uh, in this community. Like, this is a $10,000, $12,000 a year proposition to try and get your kid in preschool. Uh, it would free up working people to go to work, go to school, who right now are staying at home because they can't afford preschool. So I, I don't know, that's a, it's just in our county, but I'm hoping that will catch on elsewhere. Great overview, Don, thank you so much. Um, really exciting and, and I love uh, through the network of all the different shows, I've been really getting a crash course of some of these local candidates and local issues uh, from a labor perspective. And it's been just because to me, that's that's really everybody likes to pay attention to the big sexy races. But it's the stuff down at the ground level, uh, like you're talking about that really makes a difference to people's pocketbooks. So thanks for that. We're going to open up to questions in just a sec. But uh, John, you're an organizer. You're also, I believe, a poll watcher in uh, Michigan, I believe. So I'd love to hear uh, how that went. Uh, can you hear me? I can. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I live, um, I'm with Smart Local 7. We cover uh, the lion's share of the state of Michigan. Um, we don't have the greater Metro Detroit Ann Arbor area, but we have the other 73 counties. Um, so we go all the way from from Jackson all the way to the Wisconsin border. So um, I was I live in Traverse City. Our main office is in Lansing. So I work out of Lansing office. Uh, so I was a poll watcher and challenger in Traverse City tonight. Um, Traverse City, you know, if, if you could look at the map, just just north of Lansing, going all the way to the to the mighty Mac Bridge is a sea of red. Um, 
there's a little discrepancy over by Saginaw Bay City. But other than that, Traverse City is a blue dot. And just to the west of Traverse City is Leonel and Benzie, and they are they are purple trending blue. Um, so uh, Don Jr. was here Saturday. Trump was here, I think, yesterday. Um, and so the poll watching in my precinct was pretty, was, was fine. Uh, all the, all the, can, the clerks did a pretty good job. Um, we had about three or four people um, didn't want to wear a mask. Uh, one guy was wearing American flag um, without a mask and all these random things. One guy didn't have a hat. He had a MAGA hat on and he kind of threw a fit. Other than that, it was, it was fairly calm. Um, I'm on the Slack app with the Michigan Dems uh, throughout the state, all the poll watchers and challengers. So I've been trying to like keep up with that as the, as the night is going through and it's, it's across the board. Um, I'm getting reports all the way from, you know, Marquette, Sault Ste. Marie, um, which traditionally used to be old school Dems and Marquette's still holding its own. The Sioux is slightly changing. I'm getting things from Grand Rapids, like urban Grand Rapids. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Biden is stomping Trump in some of these urban areas of Grand Rapids. Hmm. But then when you get west of that, kind of to in the Betsy DeVos, Millican area, like it's, so it's across the board. I, I don't have a read. I, I'm kind of got butterflies, to tell you the truth. Um, hmm. It's, it's, uh, um love the dar world john <laughs> yeah and then other than that um you know the michigan it's pretty divided on the state level we were looking to gain four seats in in the house um one of those seats was actually in my district dan o'neill uh he ran last time and lost by 330 votes and oh the person God. he lost the person he lost to was under federal indictment when he ran and nobody knew so um We've been door knocking. Hold, hold, hold up, hold up. I didn't know about it. So how are you under indictment and nobody knows? So, so real, in a nutshell, real quick, um, the Tea Party, Michigan, if you didn't run, if you... They were going to run you out. They were going to run you out. So he was trying to bribe the Carpenters Union uh, for votes for money and they turned him into the FBI. The FBI put him under indictment and it never came out before the elections. It came out like three weeks after the elections or something. It was anyway. So Dan lost by 300, I think 333 votes is what it was anyway. So he's one of the four we're hoping to gain. Um, so my precinct that I watched tonight, um, we, we had approximately, 2,700 registered voters in my precinct. Um, we had approximately 1,300 absentee ballots turned in. And at my precinct, there were 824 people voted in person. So that's, it was about 2,200, give or take. So that, um, it's pretty high number turnout in Traverse City. And I don't know if that's good or not. I just, I don't know, you know. I'm really, uh, it's, it's tough, man. I'm hoping Detroit, I'm hoping Detroit and Lansing come through for us. I really am. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. All right, yeah. so hold, hold on there for a second to open it up. Uh, Steve Zeltzer, are you still there? I wanted to see if we can get a quick report from, uh, from California. 
uh, let me go over to uh, our uh, smart brother here, Jeremy, and see if you've got a comment for, or uh, questions, brother. I, I do, man. I, so I've been, uh, as I said earlier, I've been kind of glued to it on the side, paying attention here and here, and I'm getting uh, text messages from my brother who uh, lives in Pennsylvania, and I just sent him a message before, before John started speaking that at the beginning of that night, I was, I was hoping for a, a slaughter, and now I'm praying for a win. And it sucks, man. It sucks to be in this, uh, this awkward place, especially knowing that uh, the tighter the race is going to be, the longer it's probably going to take for us to have any sort of conclusion to it uh, one way or another. And, and um, yeah, it sucks, man. And John, you, you look tonight the way I felt yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, man, you, you definitely look like you put in a day. For yeah, sure. he does. Yeah, he does. And it's appreciated. Evan, Evan, uh, Evan I think, has got a question. Yeah, John, I uh, grew up in Muskegon, where uh, Trump came to visit uh, not too long ago for a big rally and uh, went to school in Ann Arbor. My brother still lives there. Michigan is definitely my child. That's where I grew up. And I'm interested, in 2016, there was a lot of reporting from Greg Palace on cross-check in Detroit area where 70,000 ballots were thrown off or something like that. And the margin of error, I think, was only 10,000 in 2016. Uh, are you seeing any problems with voter suppression? Or, I mean, I, how do you feel about that right now? Because I'm, I'm just looking at this Politico right now and saying 34% of the expected vote is in and Donald Trump's up 1 million to Joe Biden at 780,000 in Michigan. Um, I, I don't know. I've been on the Slack app with all the poll watchers across the state and, um, voter turnout is high. I think we had more people vote absentee or early than we voted. I think the last election or, or it's pretty close. Um, and, uh, the, the reports from Detroit, I were getting all day, uh, like down by Ada, um, there were some guys with some shotguns in the parking lot. Um, there's lines there like, uh, let's see, over by Blair township, which is just east of Traverse city. There's still, there were still lines at nine o'clock and that's like a low district. Um, Skegan Heights. I actually saw one of the precinct reported. There were like 10,000 people voted in Muskegon Heights at, I can't remember the, the precinct number, but it was a lot. Um, Muskegon Heights, uh, there's the, kind of white area all around the, the water and then there's railroads yep. and it's Muskegon Heights and it's 90% black and Hispanic. So. Yep. Yeah. So I, I know like, I know Trump won Michigan by like 10,000 votes. I just don't know. I've heard, so there were like, I know there were GOP That's challengers right. out and lawyers out in Romulus and around Detroit, but I haven't, I haven't heard anything con confirmed. Um, everything like, all the numbers I, the Slack is, I'm getting about 190 messages every 10 minutes. So I'm, I'm flipping through and they're just, they're all over the board. It's just, it's hard to even keep track. And I'm like, I've got kind of butterflies, like, like the Muskegon Heights, like they're blown away. But then some of them, like even like Flint, like Biden won in some of these precincts in Flint, but John James beat Senator Peters. And I was like, oh no, like, you know, it's, it's, if you it's just like in Michigan. I know. Yeah. I, yeah. So I, I just, I'm really kind of dumbfounded. I'm kind of sweating here a little bit. 
Let me, let me give you a chance to catch your breath there. Go back to Don. Don, I'd love for you to talk about being a, a labor press journalist because uh, I, I think, I mean, the, the media in general has been taking a, a real hit in recent years and, and not, none more so than the labor press, frankly. So if you can talk about what, you know, what it's like being, I mean, how, how many labor papers are there, are there left? I think only a handful, actually, and there used to be quite a few more. I, I kind of, uh, sometimes I have a dark sense of humor, and I like to joke with my friends that I've attached myself to two declining institutions, labor and journalism. But the truth is that I have some optimism for a comeback in labor, and uh, it, even though journalism is in really tough times, and it's shed, like, just, you know, tremendous numbers of jobs, basically all, the, all my colleagues in the mainstream media have uh, transitioned to uh, PR or uh, washing dishes or whatever. But I think... Um, you know, in our case, we're sort of holding on with the labor press, uh, Northwest Labor Press has been around since 1900, uh, was founded by a group of unions uh, locally, it's independent, although it's very connected to the local union movement. Um, and it's a small publication comes out twice a month goes out to about 55,000 union households. Um, but remarkably, we're in the black and you know, have healthy reserves and expect to be around for at least a few more years. No, no sign of extinction anyway. Uh, but you know, I, w I would say I feel like I have um I, I, one time I felt especially a lonely beat. Um, certainly there aren't that many labor reporters in the business press. Um, this changing a little bit, I think I, I've seen, uh, particularly in the national and online media, a tremendous increase in interest in organized labor and just sort of issues that matter to working people in the last five to 10 years. And of course, you guys are all, uh, the, you know, people watching this are hopefully familiar with the wave of unionization that's taken place at a lot of the marquee online media. That's been very encouraging. I think there's just a lot of sort of interest in in labor and labor media and stories about labor. Um, I mean, certainly the polls, I think, in terms of our long-term, uh, you know, prognosis are relatively good. I mean, the uh, the folks that are the most uh, pro, uh, highest of levels of approval of, um, of unions are actually the youngest people. Um, so I, I see that there's potential growth, you know, anyway. I don't know if that was answering your, your question or not. What's it like yeah. to be a labor journalist? Uh, lonely sometimes and uh, very exciting and a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've been watching it for, for years and, you know, there was a time when there, I mean, there were press associations, labor press associations, and uh, it's just, I mean, it, it does mirror the decline overall, but because it was smaller when it started out, uh, but like you, I've definitely seen, you know, much more of an interest in, in recent years. It, it has also mirrored, Liz Schuler was on earlier, she talked about the, what I think is 65% approval rating, which is, you know, kind of nuts for the labor movement, you know, to, for folks to, to think that uh, highly uh, of the labor movement, but it makes sense to me. Uh, and, and, and a lot more organizing and a lot of strikes, which the strike, you know, just a few years ago was supposedly dead, right? You just supposedly could not do a strike. And, you know, the teacher's like, screw that, we're going to strike. <laughs> no. Yeah, I've been watching that very closely for a long time. You know, every year the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out its uh, list of big strikes and they're not always super, super accurate, but uh, by and large, it's a pretty sad uh, sort of indicator until a few years ago. And it really, you saw just a dramatic uptick more than you'd seen in decades. Um, you know, I, I ascribe to the, the, the theory really of Joe Burns, for those who aren't familiar with him, he wrote a book called Reviving the Strike. And I think I've, I've yet to see any, any argument that, that says he's wrong 
where basically, you know, labor's power comes from the ability to, you know, um, make uh, any adversary feel some pain. And the way you do that, the biggest, uh, most effective uh, weapon in the arsenal is the strike, you know, withholding labor, not just withholding labor, but, you know, whatever, whatever it is that's, that you were supposed to be doing that doesn't get done during a strike. And if you, if you can succeed in that, uh, then you have real leverage. And so I think, I feel like sometimes the exceptions prove the rule, you know, like the very, very high wage uh, jobs, like on the longshore uh, or at Boeing, you know, owe, you know, to some extent to the efficiency and the goodness of the work, but it owes a lot to their strategic ability to strike over the years. So um, I guess I'm sort of hopeful that, you know, how you get the goods is by striking. I mean, if you go to a collective bargaining situation and, uh, you know, you say, well, I want X and they say no, and, and the question is, well, what are you going to do about it? And the answer is nothing. Well, then what are you doing there? Right. right. Well, I'd like to see more strike readiness, more strike preparation and more strikes, just because it's like one of those muscles that, you know, it's going to go really atrophy if you don't ever use it. Well, and, and Steve, I'm trying to get Steve back, but we were we started out this whole sudden kind of talking about a question that was raised uh, in the uh, in the Facebook chat about, you know, specifically about general strikes. But I think, you know, uh, more to the point is this question about strikes in general. Right. I mean, um, I mean, if you, if, uh, the number of strikes uh, is, is low. The number of general strikes is exceedingly low. Um, but, you know, it, we, when you look at strikes or movements right there's things that come from above that are organized and i've been in you know rooms when you know folks are organizing those and then there's stuff like and i'm thinking of black lives matter where nobody really organized it or the teachers strike in west virginia which was not led by the aft the aft got on board and supported but it was not led by the aft it was teachers connecting over facebook and and striking that was that was them doing it themselves and a lot of these strikes that you're talking about in the last few years have been from the bottom up not from the top down um and to me that's part of the answer to this this question um you know is is that if you wait for the leadership to organize it you're going to be waiting a long time uh, and i want to welcome tina turner morfitt who is another labor journalist uh in this case um, with uh, radio, uh, KBU, uh, uh, Labor Radio, which is in, uh, remind me of where exactly that is, Tina? It's Portland. in Portland, Oregon. Oh, well, we got a whole Northwest thing going on. <laughs> we started in the South and we moved to the great Northwest. Wonderful to have you, Tina. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, yourself? Well, sure. Um, I'm a, I've been a labor activist for over 40 years. I'm currently retired. I was previously represented by um, AFSCME. I'm a retiree now, so I belong to their retiree chapter. And I am the president of the Oregon chapter of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. Wonderful. Well, it's great to have you, uh, have you on board uh, in another part of our, of our uh, labor uh, network here. Uh, and I think we do have Steve back. I was hoping to get a report on if anything is happening uh, in the great state of uh, California. But in the meantime, I'm going to open it up to uh, questions from Evan, Jeremy, uh, or Gene. Uh, other Steve. Steve, what's happening in California? Well, I mean, uh, people are going out and voting, and there is a, a high turnout in California. Um, but the votes aren't going to start being counted until eight o'clock, half an hour. 
But okay. I mean, major, a major issue has been this, uh, well, many, uh, Prop 22, which is going to allow the, the uh, Uber and Lyft and other companies to basically uh, prevent unionization. And well, the thing about 22 was that it's, you know, the legislature, uh, I think it was passed, was it last year, uh, making those folks employees. And Prop 22 is an attempt to overturn what was done by the legislature, right? I think I think that was it hasn't been overturned. It's still the law. They're appealing. It. Yeah, they're appealing it. It went into effect January first. One of the things the law requires is that they have to pay workers' compensation, uh, besides disability, Social Security, unemployment. But what has happened is uh, that they haven't been prosecuted in California. It's illegal for these companies not to pay workers' compensation. It's a crime, misdemeanor, mm -hmm. and uh, they haven't been prosecuted by either the district attorney of San Francisco, the California attorney general, they should have been arrested because it would have brought up to people the fact that these gig companies are uh, basically not providing for the workers. And when they get in an injury, an accident, they end up at a public hospital. It's a cost shifting. And $7 billion a year in California is going to these gig companies and, uh, and it's being paid for by the public. So it's basically the company's cost shifting to the public their costs, which is an important issue. So, um, you know, that's, that's been a big issue. Also Prop 15. One of the things in California is you have a two thirds majority in California, the legislature. Now this is what we're talking about are the Democrats, the Democratic Party. In California, they have a two thirds supermajority in the legislature and the, in the Senate and, and the, uh, the assembly. They could pass, uh, a tax on the oil company, say a depletion oil tax, which Texas and Alaska has to fund education. They're not doing it. So the, even though we have a supermajority in California, the legislature is not really going after and taxing big companies, the billionaires. So you have a situation in which uh, there are a lot of, uh, and this is what I was referring to early, a lot of city, cities and, and counties and even the state government may go bankrupt in California. And if the Republicans take over, they will go bankrupt. What's the Democrats' and argument for why they're not doing this? Because they're controlled by the billionaires. That's why. I mean, that's uh, Jerry Brown. Actually, his father, Jerry Brown's father, uh, was a uh, Edmund Brown. After he left being governor, he became counsel for Amer uh, for Occidental Petroleum, mm -hmm. and he actually uh, Sukarto or the, uh, not, uh, the, the dictator in Indonesia made a deal that for every barrel of oil he imported to California, he would get a dollar as, as part of his, uh, his payoff. So, you know, the, this, it, Governor Brown is uh, supporting fracking in California, even though he says he's an environmentalist who wants to save the climate. So, you know, uh, not Governor, uh, uh, rather Governor Newsom. So, you know, there, there are these contradictions uh, in the legislature, and um, these things, they, they could pass major taxation, but they're, they're not doing it. The, the, the situation among workers now, and this is a, a I, I interviewed this guy uh, uh, from the uh, Hooker, Richard Hooker, from the Teamsters in Philadelphia, and one of the important points he said is that with Amazon growing now nationally as a major, major player, if the Teamsters organize yeah, Amazon, got, it, got, it, it just refreshed. Yeah, it's right there. 
if the Teamsters do not organize uh, Amazon, this could be a threat to the entire Teamsters union. Stupid Louis Gomer one. Yeah, I know. And that's we're getting some, uh, Tina, I think we're getting some bleed from, coming up. from you there, actually. Yeah. Pardon me? I think coming we're getting up. some sound from, from you, or maybe it's over on there. How many percentage of uh, let me bring yeah, up John, John Coleman back, and I'm just wondering about what some of the issues are uh, in your state as well. Yeah, but that's a uh, yeah, we we had a few issues on the ballot. Um, they're still, I still get a lot of, oh, yeah, so, so there were a couple, one of them was that they wanted to have, oh, we love, there we go. All right. Yeah, so one of them, they wanted to, to open up the state parks to oil and gas companies uh, to lease out for revenue that that was one of them um so they wanted to get more money for the state parks but they wanted to do it by they didn't necessarily say fracking or or whatever but they wanted to do that then another one was that they wanted to have you have to have a search warrant to access somebody's um uh, web data on their phone or something like that um so that was another one other than that they were um they were just kind of millages. There was a local millage. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head now. They were pretty low key, really. Um, the big one, the big one, Michigan's a pretty big oil state. Like right now, we got that line five. A lot of people don't know about Michigan. Um, we have a big, we have a bridge that's kind of like the Golden Gate, the, you know, the Mackinac Bridge, five miles. Um, there's, there's a pipeline that goes underneath it. It's from Inbridge, which is a Canadian company, and it goes across the Upper Peninsula. Uh, it's on the lake bottom of the Straits of Mackinac. Then it goes down and then it goes down towards Detroit and um, it crosses into Canada and then it goes to the Marathon plant. So they've been wanting to shut down this line for quite a few years now and uh, they're doing a pretty good job. But what Enbridge ended up doing is Enbridge wants to now build a tunnel underneath the Straits of Mackinac, like, which is, I think, 240 feet deep they want to build a tunnel um that way that's not getting in the water source and all these kind of things so you have it's a pretty it's a pretty hot button issue you have environmentalists uh going head to head now and democratic environmentalists going head to head now with democratic labor unions over over infrastructure plans you know mm -hmm. um so this this state this state tax on the parks to open it up to fracking and, and oil is kind of goes hand in hand with that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a pretty big, uh, it, it's been a pretty big mess. I remember seeing that uh, when I was traveling up there, seeing that uh, pipeline uh, and that bridge and, and it's just, you know, people who are not from around, they have no idea, you know, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah, it's um. So the Mackinac Bridge, it's a five mile, it's a five mile suspension bridge. Um, I think it's actually longer than the Golden Gate. Um, it's just as high, but it's not as high off the water. Mm -hmm. Um, and it spans Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. And the guys who put it in, you know, they they put it in. It was only supposed to be in for fifty years. Uh, it's it's going on, I think, sixty years old now. Um. 
and there's been a couple anchor strikes and all these random things that have hit this pipeline and it's held up and um Enbridge they pump you know hundreds of thousands hundreds of thousands of gallons of barrels of oil through this thing from from uh Edmonton essentially is where it starts and comes down and uh so I think they're going to invest they want to invest I think it's 500 million dollars it's a lot of money into building this tunnel and so it's divided the democratic party between the environmentalists and the building trades people and you know governor whitmer she's she did a pretty good job of like walking the line and what she kind of did is kind of kick the can to the attorney general to make a call on this um that way she can kind of keep her hands clean you know and stay out of it um yeah it's uh I was gonna say good luck with that that's usually i mean <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know how it's gonna work she really did a good job um when she ran against bill shooty she kind of stomped him pretty bad um which i mean it was great it was really good but um i don't know how it's gonna play down the line i really don't well and it's been really interesting seeing that statement michigan has this amazing you know labor history but then you know in recent years it's just kind of been uh, you know, it's become, you know, this interesting state, both locally and nationally, right? Yeah, and I don't know, you know, I'm a building trades union member, and, you know, it's the home of the UAW, Detroit, Flint, Saginaw, that whole I-75 corridor. Um, but when you tell people you're a union member in Michigan, they look at you with this animosity of the UAW guy who doesn't do anything all day, you know, and, um, and you get out some of these rural areas and I, and I don't really, I, I've been trying to put my finger on it. I, I really don't know what it is. And I was thinking about it today when I was sitting there and I think like a lot of these rural areas used to be the, like the three or fourth year tier supplier to a lot of these like GM and Ford and Chrysler and things like that. And when those jobs went overseas or they got downsized or whatever, all these towns, a lot of them have dried up. Like it's, there's not much there. And the, there's some companies still there, but there's no more union presence, you know? And so I think maybe like in the back of people's minds that maybe the union has abandoned them, but maybe companies haven't abandoned them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's, maybe that's the mentality that they have um, because these rural areas, Cadillac, Michigan, uh, Alpena, um, Houghton Lake, I mean, even parts of Muskegon, Adrian, Jackson, Red can be. And I just don't know why, you know, because these people, like, there's nothing there. You know, there's the jobs are, a, a good job is 12 or 13 bucks an hour. A great job is 16 or 17, you know. And uh, it's, you, you go there and you talk to these people. When I stop at shops, I stop at job sites and I'm telling them I'm from the union. They look at you. I had one guy tell me, I don't need union wages. And I was like, what? <laughs> I, I, I it threw me, for such, it well, me for such a loop. It's like, the deindustrialization of America. The rust It is. And these people feel they have no hope. And, uh, that's why Trump was elected. I mean, there's been a decline 30, 40 years of real living wages and people see no hope. And NAFTA was supported by uh, these politicians, the Democrats, you know? So in fact, uh, Trump was using that against 
uh, even against Biden, saying, look, you voted for NAFTA. Mm -hmm. That's Which, you know, it's a fair point. Let me just uh, welcome a couple of new folks. Uh, Shannon Myers, uh, the other uh, co-host of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, uh, rounding out our, our uh, Northwest uh, cadre here. So good to have you back, Shannon. Welcome. Uh, and Deborah Hall, and forgive me, Deborah, I have completely forgotten where you're from, so you're going to have to introduce yourself. I'm, I'm from Portland, uh, KBU Labor Radio, and also with Oregon CBTU. Oh, you're part of the, that's wonderful. That's great. We've yes. Oh, Portland Northwest Radio hey, newspaper organizing. Hello. Is... <laughs> Still fighting. You know it. You know it. Coming yeah. live from Southwest Washington here. <laughs> we right. don't have any results yet, but we've got like 22 minutes and all of my stuff is ready so I can give people updates if you guys want to hear them. <laughs> nice. Over to you, Shannon. Over to you. So, so I'm gonna uh, actually, uh, you know, sort of yield it to you. Uh, you've got a bunch of colleagues here, and I think, you know, let's let's. Uh, I don't know too much about Kebu. Uh, we've had a little Don briefed us a bit on on his background, uh, but I'd love to find out more. But uh, Shannon, I'll let you take lead on that. Oh, for all of my Pacific Northwest people. So, all right, that sounds great. We have a great uh, group of people here. Uh, I know KBU actually is a local radio station and you guys do a lot of uh, talk radio and you actually have a lot of spotlights on the labor movement. You wanna talk about all of that good stuff you guys are doing? Certainly, I'll um, kick it off. And so with Oregon CBT, hello folks, let me introduce myself, Deborah Hall. I'm again with Oregon CBTU. Um, we have been hosting um, Labor Radio on the first Mondays on KBOO. Uh, I'm gonna guess we're probably in our seventh or eighth year. We kicked off on, on Labor Day of that year and um, KBOO does um, have a Labor Radio show each Monday. Um, and they have for, I am probably gonna guess 20 plus years. Um, Cable has been around for what, 40, 50 years, long time station, pretty popular station in his independence forum as well. A lot of good action going on there and we're still trying to do things virtually uh, during um, COVID. And I'm gonna say pretty successfully, everybody's jumped on the podcast bandwagon, you know, Zoom, get our little recorders out recording. And so we've been able to, to do some, some pretty good shows in light of uh, COVID going on. And uh, my president, Tina um, Turner-Morford, is on the call on the, as well. Hey, Tina. I'll let you hey, jump in or offer something. Hey. All right. Anything you care to add on the CBTU side for, for us, Tina? Um, what we try to do is you try to bridge the gap between Black workers and their unions, because a lot of their unions are not going into the neighborhoods where they live. And so when we think about our shows, we're trying to think, look at things that are relevant to black workers, trying to remind them that if they don't tell them what their needs are, then their union can't address their needs. Absolutely. And we've been busy. And then um, currently we are involved with, with the, the Defend um, Democracy um, Coalition, which is a group of about 50 plus organizations from the area and some national organizations as well. We will be having um, an event starting tomorrow. Um, have a rally, I'm gonna march at Revolution Hall, three o'clock. We'll be marching downtown. 
And then we'll also, there's also going to be um, a labor follow-up um, event, a labor-led um, march and rally on Sunday, November 8th, starting at, at 2 um, p.m. So we're active. You know, Portland has been in the streets for what, 150 days, 160 <laughs> days. So and where, where is here. that rally on Saturday, sis? Um, uh, Sunday. Uh, oh, is it Sunday? Yes, and it is in the, uh, oh gosh, um, not Shemansky Park, um, Terry Shrunk at 2 p.m. So downtown. And that is um, going to be sponsored by, the primary sponsor of that is Portland Jobs with Justice. So one of the things that CBTU did during this uh, election cycle is that we partnered with a group called EWNC, which is affiliated with IBEW's their Electrical Worker Minority Caucus. Because again, um, we don't, I don't see very many black union members who are that engaged with their unions. And so the idea of partnering with EWNC was to a, um, was to uh, get more black union members out to vote, make sure they were registered, make sure that they got out and vote. Uh, uh, and also to, again, bridge that gap because we know that our different unions were doing things, but like I said, not all the time were black members uh, that, that engaged. And so um, we, uh, we're able to, like I said, build a, a coalition with them in order to make that happen. Right. Well, that's awesome. And Don, did you talk yet? I came in late. I wasn't sure if you already talked about everything that the labor press and anything that you've heard from the Pacific Northwest. The labor press. Yeah. Hi there. Yeah, I spoke a little bit earlier about what we do at the Labor Press and some okay. of the top races we'll be watching tonight in Oregon. Um, I figure I should leave the Southwest Washington stuff to you guys, otherwise I'll embarrass myself. Oh, no. Well, we have no results, obviously. Nothing's coming in yet, um, but we always expect results to start at eight, but we usually don't know races probably for two or three days uh, if they're close uh, well, because we are mailing. People, that's right, because well, one of the big differences is Washington actually allows uh, votes to be counted if they're uh, postmarked by election day. So you really don't have even all the votes in on election day, whereas Oregon, you have to get it in by then. So we actually are pretty, we're, we're the, I was mentioning earlier, we're the first state in Oregon uh, to go all uh, vote by mail. And uh, they're pretty fast. Uh, generally speaking, you'll know the results within half an hour to an hour, uh, which is nice. Uh, you know, when, it, when it's very, very close, it can drag on for a few days and there, you know, there's, you know, the, the ones that you're not sure about and there's, you know, they have to be looked at. Uh, how are you feeling about Carolyn Long? Oh, geez. Is she going to win? You know, I just looked at the numbers in Southwest Washington and we actually have almost 81% voting rate at this point, yes. which means... Did the 2008 record? Uh, I'm not quite sure, but oh my gosh, I don't think I've ever seen 80% that I, in a long time, I don't know if I've ever seen it in, in an area that I've lived in. So if we vote, we win, I hope. Um, the yeah, only problem. 
Yeah, that's been my theory too. Uh, and uh, the Seattle Times today was reporting that uh, they're on track to be the highest voter turnout in Washington ever. That's also the case in the United States. And uh, I, I think, I don't know if we lost our host, but we'll just keep talking. But, you know, I, I uh, this is, I'm a little concerned about the results nationally with the presidential race because it sort of undermines my, one of my theories. Uh, a theory is basically that we have two different voting groups. One is Republicans who vote pretty reliably uh, and then the other is Democrats who swing wildly from, you know, if they get enthusiastic, they'll turn out. Uh, if they don't, they, they, they won't. Um, and so, but, and so I, I kind of, my assumption is if you have high turnout, the Democrats will do well, but that's not necessarily what we're seeing across the country right now. Um, and of course, my, my theory has been, you have to give somebody something to vote for, you know, having somebody to vote against is not enough. But, you know, this year that is sort of special because I think people are particularly yeah. Against Trump. So I just want to jump in right now because I have Politico up the map and it is bleeding red everywhere. And I think that we're going to come across a situation potentially where Trump is going to call it based on this map. And there's still a lot of ballots that need to be counted. Uh, like everything right now, I mean, it, Trump is, uh, let me just read off some of these numbers. Wisconsin, Trump is up uh, only 70,000, but 50 and 50% 50 of the, the vote is in. Michigan, he's up 250,000 and 40% of the vote is in. In Ohio, he is up 400,000 and 88% of the vote is in. Pennsylvania, he's up 300,000, 40% of the vote is in. North Carolina, 92% of the vote is in and it's uh, within 50,000 votes, uh, Florida and goes on and on. So, you know, just seeing this map right now, I'm getting nauseous, but we got to make sure that every vote is counted and that Biden does not concede and that we, and that, right. every vote is counted. And we keep, sh we show up on the streets and report on it tomorrow when people come out on the streets because Trump may, you know, Trump said he, he want to call it by midnight, and that's an uh, hour and 12 minutes from now. So, wait, wait, who's, who's midnight? Yeah, well, exactly. Hawaii. When, when you say red, are these states that have been called, or these are simply with reporting? Uh, the, uh, reporting, I believe. Um, so, let me, I mean, I can share my, my screen. Really quick. Yeah, why don't you share the screen? I want to see what we're actually talking about here. Yeah, some, a lot have been called, but a lot of them that everyone was reading are just the percentages right now, the, the lead that he's holding right now. And even the ones that are being called, some of them are, the reporting is still way too low. Some of them are just over 50%. And I saw um, Lane Windham uh, retweeted somebody uh, saying about Michigan that they just started um, counting absentee ballots and uh, for anyone watching Michigan to expect for it to swing back blue. Um, John, I don't know if you had any comments on that. Uh, we still got John. Uh, if not John, I, 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 we can get uh, Don, Don, or I mean, actually, whoever wants to jump in on that. I mean, one of the things looking at that map was that there was a bunch of states that are shaded, which means that they're still uh, in, in play. Yeah, it um, says a lead, that's it. That's all those, those mean. But what I'm saying is that in all battle, in all war, whether it's political or kinetic, it's about the initiative. And if Trump comes out in an hour and says he won it, how- The perception, man. 
Yeah, it's, exactly. It's all, so Biden has yeah. to, and all of us have to continue to emphasize, no, he didn't. So. Well, the key here, too, was one thing that Evan said, and as I'm learning, looking at the Constitution, there's one trigger point that's even above the vote, the, the, the us people voting or the electoral vote. Biden cannot concede. Once he concedes, that's, that's the it part of it, okay? He cannot concede until all the votes are counted. So whomever at the point has been deemed the loser, as long as they don't concede, there's a lot more that can still happen. At the AFL-CIO communications meetings that I've been to, they anticipated that Trump would be ahead tonight. And mm -hmm. also that there was a very good chance that he would claim victory tonight. Right. And, that, and we have to do exactly what Evan said. We have to say, no, all votes, all votes haven't been counted. But that's that's what we that's what the labor movement understand understood was going to happen. Uh, while I have the floor, let me tell you that we lost our Senate race in Texas, and uh, that uh, Biden is currently about three and a half points behind uh, Trump in Texas. With what's with what percentage counted? We've done sort of well on the. Uh, oh, it, it's it's a lot counted, but that's not that's not the point. Uh, the, the rural votes come in late and they generally go Republican. Okay. And uh, so if it's bad now, it will probably be worse uh, for Biden by the time they finish. Uh, on the, the, the House seats, we might have taken one away from the Republicans, but uh, the one that I was looking at here in Dallas, we're, we're down one point. So one of the things I'd like to put out for, for discussion among this group because of your unique role uh, for, for almost everybody here, uh, well, for everybody, uh, um, you know, everybody here is either a member of the network or certainly you know, a labor journalist, um, you know, is that we, we have a critical role uh, with the audiences, with the platforms that, that we have uh, to use those to communicate with our folks. And I'd like to get thoughts about, uh, you know, how that's played out and, and how, how you see that. Um, I, people can jump in or I can just, uh, you know, I can go, I can, I can call on folks, however you guys want to do it. But I think that's, Don? Sure, well, I'll just share a thought or two. I mean, you know, my perspective is, you know, all politics is local. And right now we're in a, a, a situation of deep global crisis and national crisis. There's gridlock in DC. No major legislation by and large takes place, generally speaking. But at the, at the local level and the state level, I think, is, is the area where people are paying the least attention. And yet it's the area where I think individually and as local unions, we can have the most impact. So in Oregon, for example, I really think that uh, in the last 15 or 10 to 15 years, the Oregon AFL-CIO and its affiliate unions have really transformed themselves into a very effective political fighting force and have won all kinds of gains that you just maybe really can't obtain right now at the national level. For example, you know, putting the minimum wage on the, on the path to 15, which we're almost there in some parts of the state, um, passing uh, you know, paid sick leave, uh, you know, huge you know, basic benefit in most of the world, but in the United States, very difficult. Um, you know, last year we passed, uh, I guess, the first in the nation uh, rent control measure. It's not great, but basically it does limit rents as, as far how, how far they can go up. 
I mean, so, and I mentioned earlier in the uh, call, you know, in Multnomah County uh, tonight, we're probably, I'm hopeful that we'll pass a uh, universal preschool. I mean, it's a very major benefit. And so I think sometimes there's a tendency to like, you know, if the, our faction or the, the party that we prefer is out of power at the national level, just sort of, you know, focus all of our attention on that and have a kind of a psychological malaise. But I, I really, um, I just feel like all of us, maybe we were more used to getting up the next day and fighting and, uh, and, and looking where we can have an impact. Yeah, well said, Don. Well said. Uh, Tina or Deborah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Or I should say Tina and Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, for us, um, one of the things that we were focusing on was the national race. Um, it wasn't just here in Oregon, but also in other states, uh, some of the swing states. You know, we had, there were a series of phone calls and text parties trying to encourage people who lived in some of the swing states to get out there and to vote. Um, you're, you're right, um, Don, in your analysis regarding the AFL and life here in the Northwest is pretty good because they do a pretty good job with their with their allies and so uh, for us like I said the big the biggest move was trying to uh, look at the national race um, more so than than the local stuff mm -hmm. uh, Deborah I think too um, what I'm enjoying and realizing is because we have, you know, access to radio, I mean, I haven't thought about it until now and during the pandemic, that's incredible. We don't have to depend upon any other source to get news out. We can be that source, you know, and as we're seeing now, we're getting more attention because um, we're on the ground. We're generally there when it's happening, you know, real life footage, real um, understanding, you know, and not a lot of editorialization and folks can, you know, count on, on the coverage. And mm -hmm. so I think folks are, are, you know, turning to, you know, some of the, the more uh, homogenous homegrown, you know, um, productions like, like we do with the labor uh, radio. And I'm glad to see that, that the network is, is gaining notoriety and popularity as well. So. Well, and I don't know if you, you caught it, but, you know, Liz Schuler was on uh, earlier and, you know, we, we talked to her about this and she's very interested. I think we're going to actually have to have her to one of our weekly uh, meetings to really talk some nuts and bolts stuff. Uh, we asked her if she had any advice for us and she was like, well, I need advice from you guys. Um, <laughs> like, okay, we, we can do that. So I think, you know, as you say, we, we're definitely on the national radar now. And one of the things was that she was she was talking about, well, you know, do we do we uh, you know, do we want to basically do a top down thing or do we want to do a let, let a thousand flowers bloom? And, you know, one of the things that, that is so great about this network is that we are all out here doing it, you know, every week. You all do your shows every week, you know, uh, frankly. In some cases, you have institutional support and, and, and you know, varying levels, but, you know, because you're doing shows or, Don, you're, you, you're publishing articles, you know, we have deadlines. That's what we do. We make deadline. We, we have shows that we have to get out. And so one of the things I've tried to tell the national is, I mean, look, we wouldn't turn down some large checks. We're okay with that. But, you know, there are some things you can do, like make people, you know, what, what, what radio show needs are good guests, right? Mm -hmm. 
um, make some folks available to us, get us some access, some, some very simple uh, mm. kinds of things that, that would really make a, a very big difference. Um, so I do think that, um, and, and big kudos to Evan, who was the one who at our weekly meeting last week was like, hey, we should do a national broadcast. I'm like, what are you out of your mind? <laughs> well, this is, this is something that all the unions should be doing. I mean, my union, the CWA, has 700,000 members. We represent the journalists. We represent TV workers. And yet we don't even have a channel. Right. We don't cover our own, our own strikes, our own struggles nationally. And it, it really shows the political problem and ideological problem in the unions that they don't see that as a high priority. They have well, their own covering, covering live struggles. I mean, when you have journalists, when you have TV workers in your union and you can't even cover your own struggles. I mean, I, we covered on KPFA, when I was on KPFA, KQED, the workers went, were, were having some pickets trying to get negotiated contract for the PBS. No one else was there. I mean, this is a CWA union, you know? So I think we, the labor has the power and the resources and the ability to have a channel, to have use social media of all these struggles. There's, there's strikes going on that people don't even know about in this country. So Steve, to your, to your point, one of the interesting things is, and I want to bring Jeremy in on this because I think, I think SMART is a really interesting example of this. If you look at the network, right, there are, and I haven't gone through and counted them, but there are some, uh, some uh, shows like SMART where the, the national, you know, has a, has a podcast, right? Uh, but there is a bunch of Teamsters have a podcast, although actually the Teamsters podcast is recent and there are a bunch of, you know, local Teamster folks who are doing these very unofficial. In fact, one of them is out of California, Steve. Um, I think it's just some Teamster dude who's doing it in his truck on his lunch hour once every All week. Right. Too. Yeah, I support that. All right. So, you know, but what was interesting, Jeremy, was, was that, you know, your communications uh, a person talked about how, you know, this was a change in, in your union you know, relatively recently that, 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 so I, I'd be curious about your perception from your ground level uh, into this question. Uh, yeah, it, we, there, it became real apparent that the message was just getting lost. Like we were, we were, like Paul said earlier, when the message is coming from the, to, to the, from the very top, by the time it works its way down, it's like the guys at the bottom feel like they're being told what to do. And there, there's, well, there was just, they are. well, right, right. But, but there was a big disconnect there. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? Till that message got down and, and part of it was because of the, um, you don't have that uh, interaction, that regular interaction, you know, and even on a local level, uh, it's, it's hard for like my business manager to connect with the members regularly. He just can't do it. It's, you know what I mean? He just doesn't have the time. So right. this was when we started ours, it was a way for us to, um, it was a way for us to open up the, the hall, open up the staff to the members. And, you know, like, you know, I said it a bunch of times, like just make a big community a little more intimate. And uh, so they saw that at the international level. And w what's really cool is, is uh, when they, when they started planning this, uh, like, well, like Paul said, Four years ago, they they immediately saw the need for a new vehicle of delivering a message, and this was one of the things they explored. And I was I got to be a part of the uh, committee, the ground floor when they when they started planning this, and it, it it immediately planted a seed in my head. But um, you know, I never really 
thought it would go anywhere. You know, so when my, when my guys started, we all started brainstorming about a way for us to connect with our membership. I was like, why don't we just, why don't we do a podcast? I mean, I had all the stuff and like, I can just fire it up. We'll see how it goes. It's not going to cost us anything. And, uh, you know, cost whatever a monthly subscription to a, a, a host site and just run with it and see how it works. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, so, uh, you know, we were able to do what the international was doing at the same time because they, we, we pretty much launched, uh, almost, uh, you know, like within a couple months of one another. But I want to be clear, right? It wasn't like the international said to everybody, y'all should do this. And it wasn't like, no, yeah, no, 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 no. Not like you guys went to the international and said, help us do this. It was that you all just did it. I just, yeah. I, like, like I said, I saw the, the inner, I, I saw the planning part with the international. Cause I was, uh, I was w- with Paul's team when they were developing it, mm-hmm. uh, which was a big team, but to, to be clear, it was, uh, he had a lot of people that he brought in just to get some feedback and see what we thought. And, um, I just kind of took the, what I had heard from those meetings. And when I got, when we like on the local level, we just started talking about ideas, like, what can we do? And so, no, this was nothing that like the international is not telling locals how to run their local. Mm-hmm. They're doing their thing. And then, you know, and we're all doing our thing and we just, you know, kind of, uh, sort of like we talked about earlier, just because we're in different areas, there's still some, there's still some things that will overlap that we can use, like that we can implement in Kentucky that are also working in, in Washington, DC or, uh, Washington state or whatever, you know, there's, there's some things that, you know, like everybody listens to music, everybody watches TV, uh, you know what I mean? So it was like kind of tapping into that element, but yeah, no, we weren't directed to do it. We just gave it a shot, you know, just tried mm-hmm. something. So uh, just, uh, uh, I want to just go for a little bit more, but I think we're going to wrap up in about 15, 20 minutes. But Shannon, if I remember right, and forgive me if I, if I get this wrong, but I, I, aren't you the president of the CLC? Yeah, I am president of the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council in Vancouver, Washington. And I'm also a uh, state vice president for the Washington State Labor Council for my district number three. So I would like you to talk a little bit about, you know, as a, as a leader, because I think this is a really, uh, I mean, I, and especially having, after having talked to Liz, because I mean, th- this conversation that we're having here is going on at all levels, because I think that, you know, folks are really beginning to put, you know, put it together that, you know, having our media is, is important. Um, and not just something where we give it to the comms department. And frankly, a lot of locals don't have comms departments. A lot of CLCs don't have comms department. A lot of state feds don't have comms department, right? So you wind up with, you know, Jeremy is not a comms department, right? Um, so, uh, but I'm curious, you as a, as a, as a leader, um, you know, what was the process that you all went through, both you individually, but also you had, I'm sure you had to sell this to your board, right? Yeah, well, actually, and just to give you a little background on me, I actually have a degree in um, business marketing and economics, and I've been in the labor movement for 21 years as a uh, union service marketing provider. Um, So I have always said that the labor movement needs more PR, good PR, because we are getting bashed and bashed and bashed. I mean, just come on. And the problem is resources. 
um, especially at when you're looking talking about a central labor council. My central labor council, we have over 50 affiliates and we are representing close to 20,000 members in our area, but we do not even have full-time staff. We are 100% volunteer. So how this whole podcast thing came about is that we had an amazing delegate named Harold Phillips, who is from- We've the, heard of Harold. Yeah, I think we've all heard of Harold just a little bit. And he's got it, a beautiful, milky voice that just I love for our podcast. Um, but he came to me and said, hey, we should do a podcast for the Washington State Labor Council uh, because we're going to need to increase communication during our 2020 election. And we really had to try to sell it. And unfortunately, the State Labor Council didn't take us up on that. But then we brought it back to our local CLC. And since we had saved money on travel and conventions and all of this stuff, we decided we should put some money and effort into our communications. And so we actually um, uh, put together a first SAG after a podcast agreement. Um, and we hired Harold as our podcast co-host so that he can help us put this all together. And he convinced me to come on board and do this podcast every week and I just absolutely love it and our delegates love it and we have built so many relationships through the community like with the NAACP with the Democrats with the young Democrats we've even had some good luck with uh, Republican uh, organizations that have been listening to our podcast and we're trying to make it fun um, and also educational uh, for not only our Southwest corner, but just for people in general. I mean, all the topics that we're doing are topics that everybody is interested in. How to survive online education. How many of us need that? Raise your hand. Woo, I do. <laughs> so that's kind of how our podcast got started. And of course, I had to sell it to our executive board because you know, in the labor movement, you talk about democracy. We have to vote for every <laughs> single thing, which is an amazing thing because we are the union, the union is us, and that is what it's all about. So that's how working to live in Southwest Washington came. Yeah, and it's and it is, and it I mean it's a fun one to listen to. But I, I had because it was funny when Harold got involved, you know, in the network back in in, in March. Um, you know, he told us, so we, we, I, I, we've been sort of aware of this whole thing as it unfolded. And it was like, okay, well, it looks like the state feds not going for it, but you know, I think we may have some other possibilities. Uh, but it, it goes back to this discussion that we're having that we're, you know, literally of seeing out playing out across the country. You know, here in DC, you know, I do comms for the Metro Council, so this, you know, it's the same, uh, same thing. I have 200 affiliates, almost every affiliate right, has, uh, for example, a Twitter feed and Facebook, right, and I was looking through, I try and go through all the social media, um, so they all got some, somebody told them get Twitter, right, most of them have not updated their Twitter <laughs> feed since God was a teenager, and I'm like, you know, there is no point to having a Twitter feed if you're not updating it, right, and it so, just makes you look old and not knowing how to use Twitter. Right. right. I'm like, take that down, you know? And so, but, but, you know, this is one of these things where comms is always an afterthought or PR or whatever uh, is an afterthought. So this sort of goes to, you know, where I was really happy to, to meet Don, which is great. Um, and to, you know, see 
you know, somebody who's got that kind of vision and I think sort of a realistic uh, vision, but, you know, that we've got this network and, you know, we had maybe two dozen folks in March and now have found over 70 of these shows. And uh, after the stream, God, what day is it? Tuesday. I think it was after Sunday's stream or maybe it was yesterday's stream. No, this morning I got an email from some guy in, um, I want to say, uh, if he's watching now, he can remind me. Anyway, somebody, an SEIU member in New England who, who wants to start a podcast. And so the fact that we have a network now that we can plug somebody like that into and get the support, uh, a lot of us, I, I had to learn podcasting from the ground up. Um, you know, let me go to Steve because Steve has uh, been doing this for a minute and Steve and I go way back. Uh, we, I, you know, my, my labor fest here in DC was modeled after Steve's. Uh, the San Francisco Labor Fest celebrated, what was your anniversary this year? Uh, 27th. Well, we started, when? you know, it started in 1994, so it's a long time. But the idea of Labor Fest is to have a festival to commemorate a important working class event mm. that you can have an annual festival of. And it turned into a month long celebration of film festival, art, music, culture. Uh, and this year it had to go, of course, virtual, a lot of it. But the idea is we don't have a labor party. We don't have labor culture as part of a tradition. Yet we have a tremendous labor history in San Francisco, but every place has working class history. So the idea is to have a local festival where you have events, music, culture, art, films, a, a labor film festival, and bring people together and have artists, teachers, you know, historians, writers, people who do work doing things. So um, it's spread to Turkey and, and other countries. Uh, but you know, I, I've been working like for decades for a labor channel in the United States. And uh, we started in community access in 1994, actually, Labor on the Job, which was an hour long community access show. And uh, you know, to be able to have uncensored labor programming and have it on cable was uh, an important thing because there are no other labor shows. There was labor beat in Chicago. So what has happened, however, with the development of the internet, like the Zoom call, it is now possible to have a labor channel, a national labor channel. It's possible to have reports from strikes in different places or different struggles. And I think we have to develop that. I think we need networks, international networks. We had a May Day, I'm working in Pacifica, and we had a, an international May Day event, which I put the link to, which I think is the largest uh, international multimedia May Day event that's happened. And we were able to get video from Taiwan, from uh, South Korea, from South Africa, uh, from Italy, all over the world, and put it together in a portal. And I think that's what we have to look to develop a labor portal, both nationally and internationally, that includes labor programming, that includes podcasts, that includes live programming. I, it, it, it really is infuriates me that you have strikes going on in this country. Nobody knows about them. Important. Well, let me. But you said that you said that before, Steve. But I'm going to push back because people do know about those strikes. Somebody, you know, there's there's the Shannon Myers and the Tinas and the Debras and the Dons and the Jeans, you know, and the Jeremys on the ground. Nope. And the you, you guys know about them. And the point of this network is that, that is, you know that about them. But the, but the national the AFL, okay, the national AFL-CIO on their website that have a list of all the strikes going on around the country. Well, I mean, you know, we so can, we, we're pushing it we up. Can do, we, there are things that we can do to just have a list of all the strikes going on or 
what's happening around the country so people can go there. I want to find out what strike is going on in the country that I can support, that I'm related to. Have it on a website of each national union and the AFL-CIO. That seems to be a problem. That seems to be a problem. So this is something we have to develop, uh, I think, in, in our trade union movement, and that is using technology, using communication technology to get our stories out and from the ground floor. I mean, one of the great things is young, and there was a strike of the Matamoros in Mexico of the parts plant workers. I don't know if people know about that. 90,000 workers had a wildcat mm -hmm. strike. But one of the things that they were doing is they were using Facebook to get their struggles out all over Mexico. And this is a strike that didn't receive a lot of information uh, in the United States, but the workers themselves were using the technology. And I think we have to train ourselves and other workers, start using the social media to get their stories out around the country and put it on a channel. Speaking of stories, I'm seeing uh, some chat here. Do we have a who's Carolyn Long? Is that one of your uh, one of your folks, Shannon? Oh my gosh, that come is on, Washington on, State. That is right. Washington State. Washington but, but. State, third congressional district against Jamie Herrera Butler. Yes, these are, these are not official, not but, official right. at all. all. Right. These That's are only right. Clark County results, and keep in mind, Clark okay. County does win. Or she does win Clark County, but she is up barely, just over fifty point something percent. Okay. So that we'll is great it. news. I will take that. <laughs> um, we also have some news in the seventeenth. The uh, we had some uh, key races that we were looking at. So we had uh, for Senate in the seventeenth. We were on supporting Daniel Smith. And this is a race that has been Republican for quite some time. So he is at 48 to 51. So numbers are still good there. But the big one that I'm excited about too is we've got a representative position in the 17th. We've been uh, rooting for Tanisha Harris. This is her second time winning, or second time running, sorry. She lost just about by 300 and some odd votes. Oh yeah, yeah. Harold she told us about that. By fifty one to fifty one to forty eight, she is That's up. So we're excited about that. Um, let's see. I I need to look at the nineteenth. That's another one we are looking at. Let me uh, let me get Don in here. Don says yeah. he's got some Oregon results. What do you got, Don? Uh, yeah. So earlier I was expressing worry about Pierre DeFazio. Uh, once again, he's just pounded uh, this Alex Garlados. All right, Peter. That, that's encouraging. He truly is a, he's a very populist Democrat. Never was one of those who went ever for the NAFTAs and that kind of thing. So he, he had somebody running against him that was. Uh, uh, who was that that was running against Alex him? Alex Garlados. He's a 27-year-old National Guard member who happened to be on the train when this terrorist attack was taking place in Paris. Is there right. A movie about it uh, directed by Clint Eastwood that he's, he himself starred as himself. So he got a little <laughs> celebrity boost. And he got quite a bit of money. Uh, Pierre DeFazio pisses off certain moneyed individuals, hedge fund types. And they actually have tried to fund an opponent for a long time. For a long time, it was a doctor named Art Robinson. He's finally set his sights on a state legislative uh, race in, in the area, and he'll probably win tonight. But uh, but it looks like DeFazio is uh, is going to win, so I'm very pleased about that. Um, and then uh, all, it looks like uh, all of the statewide ballot measures that I talked about earlier are, are passing. There's a, a big cigarette tax. There's a... Um, a measure that would decriminalize, uh, you know, for basically possession of, of drugs and, and turn people to uh, drug treatment. 
um, which actually AFSME was a big part of that coalition and the unions generally endorsed it. It's just the right approach. Um, and I think it's kind of exciting that that, that could start to happen. Um, and then very importantly, didn't get a lot of attention I mentioned earlier, um, a, a ballot measure to allow us to uh, limit uh, money in politics. Uh, Oregon, money in politics is out of control. We had state legislator races where over a million dollars was spent on each side. Uh, and you know this this is these are these are races where you might have sixty thousand voters turn out you know so it's really been a problem um, and we've had a problem I think you know uh, trying to hold on to this democratic supermajority uh, where so many of them are business Democrats that it's kind of hard to get a labor agenda passed particularly in the yeah. Oregon Senate so that's big um, and then there's some some local results uh, but yeah it's um, I think locally I'm feeling pretty good. Well, and that sort of goes to the point that Steve raised earlier. You know, you wind up in a situation like California where you've got all these, you know, you know, uh, erstwhile, you know, all these Democrats, erstwhile labor supporters who then turn out to not be able to do anything for working folks. So, you know, this is, again, to me, why it's a, a multi-step process. And, and, uh, and, and Liz, I think, talked about this. You know, everybody gets you get lots of labor involvement. You know, in elections, lots of people get registered, lots of people get involved, and then they have the election and win, lose, or draw, and they all go home. Yeah. Right? Here's, here's where I'm going to lose my credibility just a little bit and, and become uh -oh. a conspiracy uh -oh. theorist, uh, which, and, and I, I, I joke really, but, um, you know, sometimes I wonder whether there's not a little con game going on. Uh, among, the, among the Democrats. I mean, what we talked about earlier, Democrats at the national level are voting for, for NAFTA. I think, to be fair, we need to remember that only about a third of them did. Two thirds of Democrats voted against NAFTA. But there's just too many Democrats who are trying to serve two masters. And when it comes to, I mean, Labor's motto is which side are you on? And when it comes to those conditions, I mean, if both sides are in agreement, then great. But if there are two sides, take and you're a Democrat and you don't know which side that is, that's a problem. And we have too many of those kind of Democrats, particularly in the Oregon Senate. And so, um, you know, I did mention earlier, we've passed a lot of really good things at the Oregon legislature, which is, which is exciting. Uh, but there have also been uh, good legislation that, that dies uh, sort of a shadowy death. And one of the things that the Republicans learned how to do in the last couple of years uh, that uh, it, it had apparently lain there in the Oregon Constitution never used, but there was a quorum requirement. It turns out all you have to do is you can have a minority of, uh, of, of less than a third of the legislature, because that's where the Republicans are now, and they can just walk out, go hide away, and no legislation can pass. So I kind of feel like if the Democrats were serious about stopping that, they would try to change the Constitution because the or voters would support it. But I kind of feel like they'd rather have that finger to blame, oh, the Republicans wouldn't let us do it. They'd rather just keep saying, oh, keep remember to give us money, remember to get us elected. Yeah. We're just this yeah. close to getting to getting the majority that we need. Oh, well, sorry, we only have what we have one or two corporate Democrats so we can't pass the legislation we want. So we gotta lower your expectations. But keep giving the money. Labor can be the cash cow and the workhorse, but when it comes to calling the shots, you know, let's maybe next maybe next session. And I don't want to be too too down because I again I really do think realistically we've accomplished a lot. Give me a happy Sometimes I get a little now. cynical. Give me, give me a happy well, let me throw the, a little positive spin on that though. Because okay. this year <laughs> The last two years, for the first time, and I've been very vocal of this, I get tired of, you know, my union dues go to, and we go and get all our members elected, the next thing they do is come to your house and sell it, that's what it seems like. But this year, Oregon AFL got tough, and it was like, sorry, if you haven't met our friend, no contributions, you're not coming and getting on the stage, you know, at, at Labor Day and get our um, endorsements, and, and I think that, that that's, we need to also do that nationally. And regardless of, of who's in office, 
you know, it's like, hey, we're here. Y'all aren't listening. You know, how many emails did we get from everybody? Like 15 a day, right? You'll get emails next week, but still, my water's still dirty. What about our air? Hey, my kids are still going to, you know, doing school from home. So we need to stay on everybody. Regardless, everybody, stay on them. Shannon? And I'm in Washington right. now, Shannon. I live in Vancouver. Hey, good. Come and volunteer with us. <laughs> so uh, I'm looking at the uh, statewide Herrera Butler Long, so not just by county. So it looks like Carolyn Long is at 46 and Herrera Butler's at 53. Safe. So okay. we've got some work to do. Hopefully. Got some ways to go. So so we're gonna we're gonna actually wrap this because we obviously there's a lot more counting. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll we'll let everybody know what our plan is for tomorrow. But the thing I want to leave us with is that and 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 you know we in the network have been one of the reasons the network exists. One of the reasons you know we kept meeting week after week after week was because it became increasingly clear that no matter what happens and it's been really obvious from this discussion tonight right that that this is how people get information right this and and being able to do this and you know you got to give it to capitalism capitalism is, is, has put the tools of production media production in our hands you know That's right you yeah. know they have made it possible for us to talk to folks for incredibly cheap i mean you know it wasn't that long ago to, to do the kind of thing that we're doing now you know, Jeremy would not have been able to afford this. His local wouldn't have given the money for it. Shannon, your 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 council, if if this was thousands of dollars, and actually you're one of the more expensive ones because you're actually paying somebody to do it. The rest <laughs> of us are all volunteering. Um, you know, but you wouldn't have been able to get the money for that. You wouldn't have been able to have the money for that, right? And so, uh, know, and we should be paying them a lot more, honestly. Yeah, you should. <laughs> uh, but but you know, take it while you can. Uh, but but the thing is, is that, you know, the fact when I when, and I like I said, I get to I get to listen to a lot of these shows every week and I am just blown away over and over again at the level of quality and the things that I learn and, you know, on the local level. Um, uh, oh, he's gone now, but uh, the uh, brother from Alabama was doing an interview with people in, in Latin America for his show in Alabama. You know, well, you know one of the things with his text now, Descript, you know is you can actually have text on your shows. So all these shows could be text, could be a national text, you know, listing of what's going on in labor all over the country with the different shows. And I think that that's gonna happen, I think it's gonna happen organically. One of the things I should share with you, and, and Evan, you should talk about this. We started talking about this, I'm getting confused. I was either last night or the night before, or maybe both nights, but uh, coming out of the success of this live stream, it is clear, first of all, that and we already knew this, that the depth of talent um, and, and you know is is just amazing. Uh, and so and so we've got that. But then there's also uh, you know the stream we had last night, you know, wound up you know reaching a whole lot of folks. Uh, we'll wait and see what numbers we get from from this stuff from tonight's stream. But there's clearly an appetite and an audience uh, for a laborific. Um, you know, news uh, show. And so we're going to figure out, um, you know, what we can do going forward, um, you know, to keep this going. Um, and again, we're on the national radar now. I think we've got some internationals that are interested. We even have some folks who have some money that are interested. So I think we've, we've got some things to, to go. Evan, did you want to speak to that? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I have some clothes closing thoughts as well and please you know 
I think we need to be on message together. These coming days are gonna be really hard for a lot of people and there's gonna be a lot of misinformation. And I think we need to be unified that we demand all votes are to be counted. Number one, all votes have to be counted. And we may see some unrest and we have to be emphatic that riots will benefit Trump. Riots will be used as a pretense from Trump to use law and order and potentially declare martial law. So if someone maybe who is at good intention wants to get out in the streets and start rioting, they're, they're being unwitting dupes to help Trump or maybe they're intentional provocateurs. Now, if Trump um, stops the ballot count, you know, we, we need to figure out ways to do it without riots. And obviously organized labor is always gonna be the most potent countervailing force to the ruling class. So I just look forward to continuing to work with you all in the coming days, weeks, months, and keep building the momentum and, and the network and education, organizing, mobilizing, and eventually governing. And then my final thought is America, I, I see America as an idea more than a geographic place or of a specific people. And I see that reflected in labor and I see that reflected in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. And I think this is the start of something beautiful and there's some difficult days ahead. And I look forward to struggling with y'all. Well, Evan, you had, uh, you had asked us about, you know, I did a thing at one point asking us about where we were four years ago on the, uh, that, uh, that night we'd all rather not remember. But I got to tell you, no matter what happens tonight, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor to spend it with you guys. Seriously, I, 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 I otherwise would have been glued to all these results, but it really, I come out of this feeling incredibly hopeful and, and positive. Uh, going forward. So thank you all. I know this yeah, is well, uh, working people rise up. That's what we yeah. have to do. This country. Working people have to rise up. When we do, it'll be all over for some of the people who want to crush us. That's for sure. All right. We'll follow up. We'll get the word to you in the morning what our plans are tomorrow. But again, thanks to everybody for everything that you're doing, everything that you will do. And, you know, keep, keep strong. Keep strong. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thanks everybody call. watching, of course. Okay. All right. <clears throat> no, they're talking about a revolution. It sounds like a whisper. Don't you know? They're talking about a revolution. It sounds like a whisper. While they're standing in the welfare lines, crying at the doorsteps of those arms of salvation. Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know talking about a revolution It sounds Poor people gonna rise up and get their share Poor people gonna rise up Take what's theirs Don't you know you better run, 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 run Oh, I said you better run, 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 run This final little tables are starting to turn Talking about a revolution. 
It's lying under the tables are starting to turn Talking about a revolution, oh no Talking about a revolution, oh While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those arms of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know, talking about a revolution It sounds And finally the tables are starting to turn Talking about a revolution Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's live 2020 election coverage, focusing on what organized labor is doing throughout the United States to ensure all votes are counted and labor's voice is heard. Reporting will be based on contributions from our national network of members. Views expressed do not represent official positions of the network. The Labor Radio Podcast Network has over 70 labor-focused shows in four countries and serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. You can follow the conversation with the hashtag LaborRadioPod, where we are broadcasting working people's voices 24 hours a day. And I stopped the stream, I believe. All right, I think we're clear, right? Yeah. And- yep. And uh, let me stop recording as well.